It's a joy and a privilege to be able to look at 1 Corinthians 14 with you and to be able to work through this portion of Scripture with you. Uh, you remember in chapter 12 and verse 1, it becomes obvious that the Corinthian believers had asked Paul a question or a series of questions about spiritual gifts. And so in chapter 14, Paul begins to answer their question. Last Sunday night, we began our discussion of Paul's second guiding value for the Corinthians' worship. The guiding value is what we called mutual understanding or intelligibility. The point that Paul is making is that it's very important when visitors come to your corporate gathering in Corinth that they are able to understand what you're saying. So in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 through 19, Paul briefly considers how outsiders might respond to someone standing up in the assembly and speaking in tongues. That is, uh, according to uh, the way the Corinthians were doing it, speaking in a language that no one understood. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 through 19, Paul says things like, if an outsider, a visiting believer, so I described an outsider last week, if a visiting believer or an an unskilled believer, ungifted believer, hears you talk like that, they will not be able to say amen. That is, they will not be able to voice their assent or affirm that what you're saying is true because they'll have no idea what you're talking about. And so in verses 14 through 19, Paul is concerned that visiting or ungifted believers would not be built up at all if they visited the church at Corinth and they heard everyone speaking in strange tongues. Today, we're going to look at verses 20 through 25, and we're going to continue this theme on intelligibility or the need for people to understand what we're doing and what we're talking about. And here in these verses, I believe that Paul will, uh, will talk about what, what would happen if an unbeliever came and observed the worship of the Corinthians with all of their strange tongues going on. Look in your Bible, verse 20. Paul says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, is, is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church come together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter... Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and will declare, that God is really among you. I think this passage will be quite helpful for us as a congregation this morning. And one of the reasons I think it's, it's going to be helpful for us is it's going to help us 
learn better how to treat unbelievers who would come to our corporate gatherings and who would hear the word of God proclaimed. I mean, what should be our approach to the lost who visit our services? And what should be our expectations regarding their reception or their response to our service? From earlier sections in in chapter 14, we learned that the Corinthians should know that the primary human reason for them gathering together would be the building up of the body of Christ. There are other texts of Scripture, I think, that would demonstrate or show to us that the primary theological reason for why we gather is to worship and to praise our great creator, God, and his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So the primary theological reason for why we come here on Sundays or Wednesdays is to worship and serve God and his son, Jesus Christ. But the primary human reason for us to gather this morning is to build up the body of Christ. However, this text uh, uh, will, will help us in that Paul makes a strong case here for the Corinthians, or to the Corinthians, uh, for them to communicate God's revelation clearly so that the lost are not turned away either. That is, our gatherings, our corporate gatherings, can bear evangelistic fruit as well. Now, because of the extent of human sinfulness, we've already learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we recognize that the understanding of spiritual concepts requires the Spirit of God. Why don't you just turn over in your Bibles for a second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to read a few verses to you that, that just makes this abundantly clear. If people are going to understand the things of God's Spirit, they need the Spirit of God to be at work in them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They don't accept them. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, because the things of God are foolishness to them. They hear some of the things that you and I embrace in the scriptures, some of the things of God, and they say, that's folly, it's foolishness to them. But keep reading. And the natural person, the unsaved person, is not able to understand them because God's things, they, because God's things are spiritually discerned. In other words, if you're going to understand the things of God, you need the Spirit of God to make that clear to you. Okay? So uh, when lost people come, we recognize and know that it will require a work of the Spirit of God to do something in their heart and their minds so that they might comprehend the things of God. But as New Testament followers of Christ, I think we should pray that God would do that. And we should pray that through God's grace and through his spirit that he would use us and our services and the clear communication of the word of God to be a sharp instrument to draw people to Jesus Christ. And so to better understand and apply what Paul is saying about clear communication, In corporate gatherings this morning, I want to follow his argument in verses 20 through 25. You go back to chapter 14. I want to follow Paul's argument in three stages in verses 20 through 25. First of all, stage one, verse 20, Paul gives some opening commands. He gives three to be exact. Look in your Bible, verse 20. Brothers, 
Do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. There are three commands here. The middle command found right in the middle of the verse is be infants in evil. So this command requires believers to avoid evil. We are to be as a child when it comes to our knowledge of evil. I think this command speaks of a type of innocence that we should have as followers of Jesus Christ, a type of naivety concerning the trends and practices that spring forth from this current evil age. In a play on the illustration here for a moment, I think we can all tell stories of some young child who came to us and asked us a very innocent or naive question, something that seemed to make sense to them because they were just so pure and innocent in a sense. Now, we know that all, all people are born in trespasses and sins, but you understand the concept of the illustration of of a small child asking an innocent question, like a child coming to his father and said, you know, saying, Daddy, why are those two women married? What's that? D- Daddy, that doesn't sound right to me. And so as a parent, we say something like, well, it's not right. This child in his innocence is struck by how wrong that is. Yet sometimes believers almost boast about being savvy in the world or about their knowledge of how sin works in our culture. Instead, this middle command, this verse tells us to be simple when it comes to evil. I think in a practical way, what that means for us is that means that we leave the table. We we leave the table when someone begins to tell us at the workplace of their latest sinful exploits over the weekend. Instead of allowing that person to to help educate us in the finer points of depravity, we're to be infants in evil, innocent, naive. We don't want to hear all about it. You know, I was thinking of this middle command, I couldn't help but think of you know, what's going on in Hollywood that we're hearing about these days. And I don't know about you, but there's a certain part of me that when I begin to hear that sexual perver- perversity in Hollywood, I just say, you know, that's enough. I don't want to hear this stuff. I mean, get the law involved. Let's prosecute the people, but I just don't want to go to all the websites and read all the articles about all the debauchery there, right? Be simple, be infants concerning evil. Now, the first and the third commands, though, in this text challenge the Corinthians not to be children in thinking, but in thinking to be mature. You look down in your Bible so you can see that. Paul wants them to think in mature ways. These commands require believers to act like adults in the way that they think. These two commands, I think Paul is challenging them to be wise, and in context, I think that he's challenging them to avoid the natural tendency of a child to be self-centered or vain, or to recall attention to themselves, or have, to have a mindset that is all about their own advancement and pleasure in the realm of worship. Don't be self-centered. Don't be childish in the way you think about worship and your gifts, but be mature. Now, I think this should have us ask the question, what does a mature believer think about worship? Or how does a mature believer think about worship? And I think that that's where he goes in verse 21. I mean, to answer that question very simply for you, how does a mature believer think about worship? A mature believer interprets worship and worship experiences according to the scripture. 
or through the lens of Scripture. And so what Paul does in verse 21 as he, as he moves to the next point is he will bring a text of Scripture from his Bible to bear on their questions regarding tongue speaking in the church. And so Paul says, be mature and think the way the Scriptures say or state about worship. And so what Paul does is in verse 21, this is amazing. Paul uses his Bible. I can almost imagine the apostle Paul, you know, I've got this problem in Corinth. They've got these strange tongues going on. No one understands it. And weird stuff is happening. It's like they're foreigners. Like they're they're being surrounded by foreigners and they're hearing all this babble. So Paul thinks in his mind, "I I need a text of scripture that can help these people. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Pete. And so he finds a text of Scripture that has strange tongues and foreigners in it. And so I'm going to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. I want to go back there for a moment. As you do that, I'll read the verse that he quotes. He says, in the law it is written. I think with that phrase, in the law, he's he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament Scripture, the law. In the law it is written, here's the quote from Isaiah 28 that you're getting to. It says, uh, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, so if we're going to understand the quote that he gives here, we, we need to know this coming from Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28 is located at the beginning of a great series of woe oracles that God gives to Judah and Jerusalem about their sin, especially because they have made, they're making false alliances with nations that they think that will deliver them, especially the nation of Egypt. They think that Egypt will deliver them, and they should be trusting in God and God alone for their salvation. And so as you come to Isaiah chapter 28 in particular, this chapter consists of an oracle against the political and religious leaders, the, the priests, the rulers, the prophets of God's people, because they had rejected God's counsel to rest and trust in him alone as being too naive. That's too childish. And they had gone ahead with an alliance with Egypt. These rulers had refused to listen to what God said to them in plain language, so the text I'm just about ready to read to you will say that God decided to speak to them in a different way. Look at verse 11. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet, they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. God's new way of speaking to the rulers of Jerusalem is through foreigners speaking in different languages to them. Now, when we think about foreigners speaking in different languages to us in our culture, I think our our thought is primarily that of like vacationing or travel. Like if I'm going to be surrounded by people speaking in French, I think, you know, my mind, I just default, oh, I must be going on a trip to Paris or something. 
However, in the ancient culture, in the Old Testament culture, when, when someone used this analogy or this idea, it did not speak of travel, did not speak of vacation, but spoke of judgment. For they did not think of being surrounded by foreigners in a strange land, but here in this text, God is using the illustration to tell Israel, there's going to come a time in the near future when you're going to be surrounded in your own land, in your own houses, surrounded by foreigners speaking strange lungs, or strange tongues to you. So here the threat of foreigners speaking a different language was a common way for someone to understand the experience of foreign invasion or possibly exile to a different country. That's Isaiah 28. So, so when Israel believed God, he spoke to them plainly through the prophets in their own native tongue. But when Israel was unbelieving, God sent foreigners in unknown tongues with sharp instruments of warfare and judgment. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's see if we can figure out what this quote is doing. Back to 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a point with this citation. He explains that Isaiah taught that strange tongues by foreigners were given to unbelieving Israel. Consequently, if you look in your Bible at verse 22, he explains, he draws a conclusion from this. He says, thus, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Just like Israel was unbelieving and they received strange tongues, tongues is a sign for unbelievers, whereas prophecy, speaking God's revelation in your own native tongue, is a sign for believers. That is, prophecy was designed for the prophet of believers. Tongues is a sign or signal to unbelievers of God's judgment. But I want you to notice, look in your Bible again at the quote, verse 21. In the law it is written by people with strange tongues by lips of foreigners while I speak to this people. But then how did they respond? How did unbelieving Israel respond? And even then, they will not listen to me. They did not hear. So Paul says this is how mature believers in Christ think. They think tongues are for unbelievers. Prophecy is for believers. And that leads Paul in verses 23 through 25 to give some extended implications about this this whole concept. And I think Paul goes in an unexpected way. I mean, as I read verse 23, I think you come to one of the hardest texts, right, in in 1 Corinthians. I mean, verse 22, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But then in verses 23 through 25, he seems to be saying something different. So, uh, he, I think we can understand, though, what he's saying by two implications that he makes here, or he draws. Okay, the first one is in verse 23. Look there, it says, If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Here, Paul says that unbelievers will be repulsed at the experience of speaking in tongues and even outsiders as visiting believers, and will question whether these believers in Corinth are sane people. I mean, Paul's comments about tongues are quite interesting because in verse 22, he says tongues are a sign for unbelievers, but in verse 23, he says tongues will cause unbelievers to question the sanity of believers. This seemed to be a bit of a contradiction for you. So how do we understand? I think the way we understand this is to understand the word sign in verse 22. 
We need to know that when this, when this word occurs in the New Testament, it can have a positive effect. It can be a, pos, a positive sign or it can be negative. And here I think it's negative. Paul's using it in a negative way. I believe what Paul is saying is that when an unbeliever visits a believing congregation speaking in ways that they cannot understand that it will be a sign to them of their alienation. That is, if an unbeliever, Corinth, if, they, if an unbeliever walks into your assembly and they hear all of that stuff that they cannot understand, it will be a sign that they are an outsider. This mysterious language will in no way endear them to you. They'll just leave knowing that they're on the outside, that they don't get it. And when they leave your assembly, they'll ask questions like, are these people crazy? I mean, like that whole thing was just all these competing different languages. How's anyone supposed to get anything from that? So unbelievers then hopelessly outside of receiving God's word through the strange communication dismiss the whole experience. The whole experience in Corinth and they leave asking, are these people crazy? I think it's like unbelieving Israel's dismissal of foreigners in their own land. Even then they didn't hear it, right? And Paul is saying the same thing will happen to believers who come and visit your service if you're, if you're speaking like that. So Paul's point in verse 23 is that tongues won't help unbelievers. It will only settle them deeper into unbelief. As David Garland writes, he says, the lost who hear uninterpretive tongues will make for the exits. Make for the exits. They won't be back. I have no idea what that just was, but I'm not going back there again. In a culture, first century culture, where demon possession and animism and false worship was common, strange tongue speaking might give some visiting believers the impression that the Corinthians were just like the followers of Dionysius or Sibeli who would be carried away by panic and religious mania of all kinds of different sorts. So Paul says, don't speak in tongues in the public assembly without it being interpreted. I think the clear application for our church is that confusing worship practices in our gatherings that draw one's focus to human beings instead of the word of God will encourage guests to dismiss our worship entirely. So the first implication I draw from this, the first principle I draw from this is confusing worship practices allow the lost to dismiss our worship entirely. Now, sometimes the word of God is obscure or hidden from the lost. We know that. We just read that, 1 Corinthians 2. But if one of our practices or our tradition itself obscures or distracts the lost from the clear meaning of the word of God, then we drop the tradition or the practice. I think in ways we potentially apply this, I think this is Maybe one of the reasons why we don't baptize babies here. Okay, well, we, we don't baptize babies for a few reasons. One, nowhere in the scriptures does it teach that we should be baptizing babies. Secondly, there's no place in the scriptures where I can find a baby being baptized. But then beyond that, I mean, even if you don't, even if you think there's nothing saving about baptizing a baby, we, we don't do it because we don't want we don't want to give people the wrong impression. We don't want a guest or a visitor to come here and say, you know, what is, you know what's, what's that? Is that you know, we don't want them leaving thinking that's the way someone becomes a believer or saved. 
when the gospel clearly, the word of God clearly teaches the only way to be converted is through belief on the person and work of Jesus Christ for our sins. And so the first implication I draw from verse 23 is that confusing worship practices allow the lost to dismiss our worship entirely. That leads me to one more implication found in verses 24 and 25, and that is clear worship practices that emphasize God's revelation will stir others to declare that our worship is real. I love verses 24 and 25. Don't you love them? Well, let's read them. It says, but if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Verses 24 and 25, Paul draws out one more implication from the Old Testament quote in his comments about worship here. And he demonstrates that clear worship practices that uncover God's revelation will stir others to declare that our worship is genuine. Paul says here that the outcome of unbelievers and outsiders, visiting believers, hearing prophecy is entirely different. When they hear prophecy, that is, when someone reveals God's word to them plainly in their own language, Paul says several good things will happen. I just want to, an enjoyable moment for me, just walk down through a few of these. First, when you do that, when you uncover God's revelation, unbelievers will become convicted regarding their sin. That is, unbelievers will become aware or conscious of their own sinfulness. They'll be convicted. Second, unbelievers will be called to account for their wrongdoing. The word account here could be translated judge. They're going to recognize the fact, not only are they a sinner, They're going to recognize that they will be called to account. They're called to account by the all, but all people will call them to account in the assembly. And I think that the the account here is before God. So they will recognize that they're under God's judgment. Third, when when we simply open up God's revelation to people, to lost people as they come here, Paul says, the secret sinful thoughts and actions of unbelievers' hearts will be disclosed. The text says, look down in your Bible, the text says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Men and women, the secrets of the hearts of unbelievers are not good things, but hidden, sinful, slanderous, greedy, lustful aspirations. I mean, I think, again, What we're hearing out of Hollywood only confirms that. And this is how God sees them. This morning, uh, Pastor Les read two verses of Scripture. He read, one of the verses he read was Hebrews 4.13, where it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
God sees. I love Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 because it talks about his word and his eyes. God sees. And so, looking back at verse 25 again, the next thing he says is that this convicted, held to account this liable, exposed sinner will fall to his face and worship God. That is, he will repent and worship God when the word of God is clearly revealed, not tongues. And then finally, this convicted, liable, exposed, repentant sinner declares that God is at work here. I mean, look at verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God, and he will make a declaration. He will declare, God is really among you. Well, crucial to our understanding of this part of verses 24 and 25 is the idea that worship is an encounter, or core to the idea of worship is the idea that, that it's an encounter. So when we truly worship God, we, we encounter him, wouldn't it be great if men and women who came to Colonial Baptist Church would meet God. Wouldn't that be great? I want them to see friendly, joyous people. I want them to see human beings who who really believe the word of God. But ultimately, when a lost person comes and they see us going through the word of God, listening to the word of God, singing together, I want them to meet God in our gatherings. And so while while our gatherings are primarily for believers to worship God and to be edified or to build others, this verse reveals that genuine worship can also have an evangelistic effect on those who are lost. And men and women, may I just tell you from my heart as your pastor, we need more of that. We need more of this. First time I read this, phrase, studying for this sermon a few weeks ago, I came to verses 24 and 25, and I thought, man, that is genuine worship when a lost person responds like that. That is genuine, Holy Spirit-empowered, gospel-empowered worship, and God Would you give us more of this? So as we close, I make this statement to you men and women. We have one thing that will change lives. And it is not human eloquence. It is not a gifted public speaker. It is not a concert, a musical concert. I don't care who the performer is. We have one thing that will change lives. And that is the eternal and abiding Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing down to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts 
in the intents of the heart. I think sometimes we feel that the preacher needs some piece of humor in his sermon or some inspirational story from years ago about someone who got like ripped off or someone who got hammered on or something. That's what he needs. Well, but we can fail to remember that the inspirational story about the person a hundred years ago who was hammered on or was martyred, the only way that person stood was through the enablement of the word of God. And so if you want to pray for your preacher, don't pray, don't pray. Lord, give him a better, give him better illustrations. Give him more powerful applications. Give him more humor. He just needs humor. Or give him some great stories from yesteryear. Pray that your preachers have a greater confidence that the word of God will change lives. This is what we have. This is what will impact others. And so from this story about tongues and prophecy in Paul's New Testament scripture to the Corinthians, I think it would challenge us to pray that what we do with the word of God in our corporate gatherings would be used by God to convict people regarding their sin. And so let's go to the Lord and ask him to do that with us here at Colonial Baptist Church. Let's pray together. Father, As we close, I'm thankful for the heritage of Colonial Baptist Church that I in some ways have inherited. Lord, I believe that it's, it's nothing that men, men have built or contrived. It's just a testimony to your blessing and your grace on our church. Lord, I tell many people, we are text people. We're not against the stories or the illustrations or the music or the whatever, but we're text people. And so, Lord, as we come to you this morning, I'd pray that you do two things. One, I pray that you enable that to be even more true of us tomorrow than it is today. Lord, if there are believers here, they're beginning to shake or beginning to waver in their confidence in the ability of the word of God to change lives, I pray that this text would just would encourage them this morning. That Paul really believed that the Corinthians would gather and worship and proclaim God's revelation in a, in a language that other people understood that it would convict them and they'd be called to account by the all and they would fall on their faces and worship God and say that God is really among the Corinthian believers. Lord, may we be challenged and encouraged by that and still believe in the the old-time gospel power, the power of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives. So, Lord, I pray that you would deepen and strengthen our confidence in the word of God. And then I would also pray that you would protect us Lord, please protect us from things that would obscure truth or distract people's focus from the worship of our Creator God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, please do this for the glory of your own name through Colonial Baptist Church so that we might be a light to the Hampton Roads area. For your honor, for your glory.
In Jesus' name, amen.